Right, today we're going to be in Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. That's, uh, we're going to be in verses 7 through 13. It's uh, page number 1029 in the New Testament, and your uh, Bible's in, on the front pew, or the pew in front of you. Um, well, it's good to be back here again. It's our family's uh, second Sunday back from a pretty exciting road trip. Um, and uh, we had an amazing time driving out to Colorado. And I, I said driving, yes, with three small children. Oh, children, yes. Children are dismissed to Children's Church, and uh, they can come get their notes as well. All right, so like I was saying, we just got back from our trip out west. We went to Colorado by way of St. Louis. There's us in front of the Gateway Arch. Um, it's really shady, but you can kind of make us all out. Oh, that's way better than it is back there. Okay, anyways, um, yeah, we, went to, we drove to Colorado and spent a week at Young Life Camp. Um, and the Young Life is a parachurch ministry for high school students, but they also run a family camp in Colorado, um, set in like the, just a, a foot of a mountain, and um, it's beautiful. We did, uh, shot some BB guns and went off-roading in a Jeep, went and rode some horses, uh, a lot, a lot of swimming, um, and uh, just a great time with uh, skits and songs and, and uh above all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it was a, a great time, spiritually refreshing for our family. Uh, so we spent a week in Colorado, and because Colorado wasn't far enough for us to drive with three small children, we uh, drove out to Arizona to visit the Grand Canyon after camp. Um, so how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody? Right. It's awful, right? Yes. No. Not the awful as in horrible, but awful as in just... Uh, Amazing. I mean, it's surreal. We were um, we were driving to the first outlook, and as you come up, we were we came in the east entrance of the south rim. If any of you are super familiar with the area, um, and as you're coming up, you can't see the Grand Canyon, and so you're driving along, and you're like, "Whoa, this is really cool stuff over here. There's really cool stuff over here," and then you kind of get up to this kind of plateau area, and you can't see anything, and you're like, "Where is it?" And you kinda, you have to kind of walk through a path. And finally you get there and you're like, you kind of see, you kind of see it peeking through some trees and maybe some buildings and then you get there and you're just, um, we were just blown away. I mean, it was, uh, it was an amazing view, just surreal to be on the edge of something like so big and they don't have railings in some places and you can just stand there and look down and it's, I mean, it's down. It's, it's really far. Um, so trying to corral three children and everything, but uh, I, we did get a couple pictures, um, and I do want to share one with you. Um, this, was on, this was at that same area. This is from the Desert Overlook, um, and it's on a watch. There's a, they built like a really cool kind of watchtower area that lets you look out onto the whole um, section of that whole section of the Grand Canyon. This is kind of looking out towards the desert. Um, and if, you, right, and if you've seen a picture of the Grand Canyon, you've kind of seen them all because pictures don't really do it justice and, and all that. Um, but I want to draw your attention to something that you might not look at normally when you look at a picture of the Grand Canyon. So this is taken from the eastern edge. There's a desert. And if you look really hard, you can see a tree. Actually, you can't. Not in this picture. Sorry, I've got to zoom in. All right, that was supposed to be a joke. Thank you. <laughs> so now if you look really hard, you might be able to pick out the tree I'm talking about. Um, 
It's a tree, 7,000 feet above sea level, at the edge of a canyon, literally, um, at the edge of a desert. So this tree has some serious guts, right? It's holding on for dear life. It's holding fast to the edge of the rock. And it's not just... um, it, It is small, but... It's thriving. It's green. Um, And so that brings us to the church in Philadelphia. They were small. They were facing persecution. Um, They thought they lacked power, but they were commended by Jesus as a faithful church. So if you'd please open your Bibles to Revelation 3, if you haven't already. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13. Let's hear what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now in this passage we see um, a lot of background that's necessary in order to understand what's happening in Philadelphia. So Philadelphia... Uh, Does anyone know what Philadelphia means? Ruthie? Brotherly love, right? So Philadelphia, we call the city of brotherly love. Well, Philadelphia uh, is the city of brotherly love. Now, we're not talking about the the city in in Pennsylvania, but we're talking about the city in uh, first century uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Well, Philadelphia was started in the second century B.C. by a king... Not named William Penn, but a name much harder to pronounce, King Eumenes II. I am probably butchering that, but anyways, it's King Eumenes II. And so his brother loved him so much that he named the city after him. Well, his nickname was actually Philadelphos. He loved his brother so much. And so he named the city after him. And then when King Eumenes II died, he left his entire kingdom to Philadelphos. Well, when Philadelphos died, he had no heir. So he left his entire kingdom to his Roman allies. And the Romans uh, created the province of Asia out of the territories held by King Eumenes and also the the kingdom of Pergamum. And uh, so in Philadelphia, the actual city, um, it was located near a fertile valley. So their economy was based on agriculture. So in that, you would think like the Roman gods of, of Artemis, Zeus, Helios, Dionysus, and Aphrodite all had temples. They were, it was a grape-growing region um, and, and a, a other agriculture. So, um, also in the city, there was a Jewish synagogue. Um, so think about in the first century, the Jewish believers, so, so like Jewish uh, 
people that were converted to Christianity. So the Jewish Christians came to faith in this, in this city, and they were facing some intense pressure from the Jews who had not, um, get, had not believed in Jesus, right? So you think about Jewish Christians in the first century, they go and they worship kind of, uh, they do their Jewish thing, they kind of worship and uh, go to the synagogue, they worship and keep the holy days, and yet on the first day of the week, they gather with other believers in Jesus and worship Jesus the Messiah, the uh, fulfillment of the scriptures. And so, it has to to be um, quite the tension at family dinner when you have Jewish Christians coming and sitting down with Jews, and you think, the Jews believed that they had the only access to God. They were the ones, they were the chosen people and the ones who had the true access to God through their rituals and laws and ceremonies. And yet, um, they see these Jewish Christians who believe that Jesus is the way, that he is the one who fulfilled all the scriptures and now provides a way through faith in him to God. They, the Jews believed that the Christians were heretics. They were preaching this false truth, and yet... Um, so that's got to create a lot of... So they were exerting a lot of pressure on the Christians in the, at the time to maybe come back to the old ways, to uh, deny the name of Jesus and trust again in their traditions and laws and, and uh, ceremonies. And that's kind of what the book of Hebrews is about. Um, but we're dealing with Revelation right now. And so Philadelphia... Um, this is a, just imagine the, the tension that exists among friends and family and communities. So here comes the letter to the Philadelphia, uh, to the church in Philadelphia, right? Um, we've gone through five of the churches, uh, and um, four of those, there were some, Jesus had some pretty harsh things to say. So I can imagine as the mailman is coming around the route, right? It starts in Ephesus and he's made his way to Philadelphia now. He's gone through Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis. Um, and so the mailman has, I'm guessing he's stayed in town and heard what the, uh, me- the message was to those churches. And so he's coming and I'm sure he's kind of handing over the, the letter to the pastor at Philadelphia and just kind of maybe wincing a little bit, like, ooh, I, you know, I'm not sure what's, what's going to be in this. And yet we see something in, the, in, this, in this passage, in this message to the church in Philadelphia that's different than four of the other previous churches. Only Smyrna shares this and that. They have, there's no rebuke in this church. Philadelphia was commended as a faithful church. So why is that? Why was Philadelphia commended as a faithful church? And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, So in order to understand the evaluation, we have to understand the evaluator. So we're going to look at what John says about Jesus and how that pertains to Jesus' evaluation of the church in Philadelphia. First of all, in verse 7, John says, The words of the Holy One the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So in verse 7, we see that Jesus is the holy one and the true one. So what does that mean, that Jesus is the holy one? Right? We sang, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty today. We sang um, that we believe in the name of Jesus. Right? He's the, um, we believe in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And yet, when it mean, what it means to be holy, you can... We try to think of something that is 
so good, so set apart from sin in our minds, and then we try to lift that up a level or lift it up a thousand levels in order to understand what holiness is or what God's holiness is. Well, A.W. Tozer says we can't do that. It's not something that we have in our mind, in in the framework of our minds, to understand what God's holiness is because God's holiness is so removed from us. He is so removed from sin, so set apart and devoted to his holiness or his his, um, honor and glory that we cannot understand it but by means of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, John is identifying Jesus as the Holy One. He is set apart and he can see all. He is objective um, and is able to evaluate this church. And he's so removed from sin that he's uncorrupted. He's able and, and um, has the capacity to see the sin and see, um, see the church as it really is. And that leads us to the second thing that John uses to identify Jesus. He's the true one. Now, true, like, seeing the truth is seeing the world as it really is. Um, so Jesus is able to be set apart totally um, able to see all things as they really are. He's the holy one and he's the true one. Well, secondly, in John's identification of the evaluator, the one who is going to evaluate this church in Philadelphia, he says that he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is in verse 7. So um, this is a very specific and kind of interesting identifier for Jesus um, because John, uh, in the five previous churches, in the messages to the five previous churches, has used, um, kind of, has taken those identifiers from the first chapter of Revelation where he sees this vision of Jesus and takes those first five churches' identifiers of Jesus out of that first chapter in Revelation. Well, this is the first one that doesn't come from that first chapter in Revelation when he says that he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Well, this is a a direct quote from Isaiah 22, 22. And in in Isaiah 22, in that context, um, Isaiah uh, is pronouncing against Shebna. Shebna is the palace administrator during the time of King Hezekiah. Um, so this is the Old Testament, right? During the time of King Hezekiah. And um, Shebna has grown proud and corrupt. And so Isaiah is saying that God is going to remove Shebna, and in his place he's going to put a faithful and trustworthy administrator, Eliakim, and he is going to give him the key of David, right? He is going to have the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So Eliakim is given the key of David. And in Isaiah, the context there is that literally he will have the key to the throne of the king. So he will be the one that controls access into the throne room. He will be the one that controls access to the palace, to the very uh, living place of the king. And so the parallel here is very strong, right? When we think about the Jews and the pressure they were exerting on, um, on the church, beyond those believers in Philadelphia, how um, they believed that they had the only access to God. And yet Jesus is, and John is saying that yet no, Jesus is the one who has the key. He is the one who has access to the king. And he is granting access to all those who are faithful, who believe and trust in him. 
And not only that, uh, this kind of um, this theme of Jesus being the way and our access to Jesus is all throughout the book of John. In one instance, he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 10.9, he goes so far as to say not only that he has the key, but he is the door. So not only is he the key, but he's the door. He's everything. He is everything into, um, into the presence of the king. Uh, so in order to gain access to the king, you must go through Jesus. And so um, the parallel is that Shebna is being replaced. Shebna represent, or Shebna would be Israel or the Jews, right? The Jews have grown proud. They've grown corrupted. And the keys are being given to Jesus who is granting access to those who believe and trust in him. And what an encouragement that is before we even move on, just that we know, um, we know that no church is perfect. And this church in Philadelphia is most likely no exception to that. And yet... Christ has commended the church in its works, as we'll read later on. So we can see that the holiness that we receive from the blood of the Lamb and the works that we can then do through his Spirit who empowers us allows Christ in his grace to commend the works of his imperfect people. We know that the Lord Jesus, who sees things as they really are and is set apart from sin, would commend this church in Philadelphia, is encouraging not only to that church but also to our church and to us as individuals. So let's take a look. Now that we've uh, seen who the evaluator is, we can delve more deeply into his evaluation. It starts in verse 8. Let's look at his evaluation. Uh, Let's read in verse 8. It says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you keep my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Well, we see that the holy and true one knows their deeds, right? He's the objective one. He knows their works. And he set before them an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power. In verse 8, he says that he knows that they have but little power. He's acknowledging the fact that they are this small agricultural community with probably not a lot of money and not a lot of power and influence. And yet, um, he's setting himself up as the one who opens the door for them. Right? So in saying this, he is saying, yes, I know you have little power, but I, he's acknowledging that he is the one with the power, and they are acknowledging that he is the one with the power, he is, because they have kept his word. And so he's the one with the power, he has opened the door for the church in Philadelphia, and I think it's precisely because they realize and recognize that they have but little power. Right? In front of this giant God, they realize that they have but little power. God is pleased to empower them and then commend them for the work that he empowers them to do. So we recognize, they recognize their daily dependence on him. And just like I think in your own life or in my own life, the times that I've done uh, the work that I feel is most empowered by the Holy Spirit are the times that I feel that I am daily dependent on him. 
right? It might be a time of trial, or it might just be a time where um, God is just humbling me and using me. Um, but those are the times when I realize my daily dependence on him and can go forth and uh, do the work that he gives in the power that he gives and the strength that he gives. So um, in Christ recognizing that they have little power, he's saying that um, uh, he is the one that has the power because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So along with this, he's saying that they have kept his word Right? In both of these instances, in, in both actions in which he commends the church in Philadelphia, he's saying that they have kept his word and commends the church. Um, and so I think it's, it's important to look at that keeping of the word. Right, In, in both instances, he talks about, um, in verse 8, he says, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. And in verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Well, the, the word that the church in Philadelphia had at the time of the writing was maybe not quite this hefty, all right? They had maybe some firsthand accounts of Jesus and some of the Gospels. Uh, perhaps some of the early epistles um, had made their way to them. But uh, definitely, you know, we have something much, a little bit greater than what they had. So when we talk about keeping his word, just keep that in mind. Um, so they had these specific words about denying his name and keeping, uh, sorry, patiently enduring. So we'll talk about that in a second. As soon as I find it, here it is. All right. All right, so, in, so the first instance of his evaluation, uh, he says that they have not denied his name. Right? They have kept his word and, is not, and have not denied his name. Um, and so the church in Philadelphia is being commended for not denying his name. Well, we think of a name as just something you call someone by, right? Uh, and yet, in the first century, or even, even before that, right, a name was your definition. It was who you were, it was an identification of you. And so Jesus' name means Savior. And to call him Messiah means that he was the promised one. He was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies from Abraham to, to the time in Philadelphia, right? And so um, the church in Philadelphia is being commended for keeping his name. And you could think of the intense pressure and uh, kind of... Um, I want to say shade that the uh, the Jewish believers were giving, or the Jewish people were giving to the church in Philadelphia. Right? They were um, they were pressuring the Jew- the Jewish Christians to deny Jesus' name and come back to the old rituals and ways that would that would lead into destruction ultimately for them. And yet, the church in Philadelphia is commended for keeping his name. They are commended for keeping all of who Jesus is, all of the. Um, the, um, all of who Jesus is as the Son of God and the risen Lord and Savior. Um, and I just want to draw our attention to that part where he says um, 
that behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So in, so in thinking of the Christians holding on to Jesus' name as Messiah, as the Christ, thinking of that, we can turn to John 8.31. And in John 8.31, Jesus has this discussion with Jews who believed him. Um, and in that discussion... He talks about Abraham and talks about their, the true father of the Jews who had grown proud and corrupted. It's John eight thirty one, And he says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There it is, that abiding in his word again, the keeping his word. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So he gets into this argument with the Jews about how if they really believed in him, if if they really were children of Abraham, then they would believe in Jesus and do what he says. Well, the Jews get into this argument about... um, who their father truly is. And they say their, their, their father is really God. And Jesus says, no, your father is Satan because he's a liar. And you have said nothing but lies because they have denied his name, because they have um, not done what he has said. And so there's this um, back and forth. And finally, uh, we see um, the Jews just kind of, Jesus just saying that your father is the devil. And so that's where this, um, instant, that's where the, in verse 9 it says, I will make those of a synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are, and are not but lie because they do not trust in Jesus as the Messiah. They don't trust as in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus says he will cause those who are lying to see the truth, right? Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Well, that's kind of a reversal of what we see, what the Jews had expected, right? The Jews had expected that in the end, in the last days, that the entire nations, all the nations would come and bow down before them and see that they were the chosen ones. And yet Jesus says here that it's not the nations that will come and bow down before the Jews because he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble and tears down proud kings and exalts those who are humble. Um, it's not those that will come and bow down. It's the Jews that will come and bow down before the church in Philadelphia and see that he has loved them. Well, that's the first uh, commendation that Jesus gives in his evaluation of the church in Philadelphia. The second is that they patiently endured. We see in verse 10, it says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So the church in Philadelphia has endured patiently these trials and pressures and persecutions from the Jews in Philadelphia. And yet, the the pressure to deny his name. And so Jesus says that in the coming hour, in the coming time of the trial for the the church, um, that he will keep the church in Philadelphia from the hour of trial. And yet, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's just going to pick them up and take them out and remove them from that tribulation. Uh, but it does mean that he will preserve them during the trial and they will persevere and not deny his name during that time, which is coming to the whole world. Which we've, we've talked about previously, like when Will talked about the martyrdom of Polycarp. 
um, just that pressure from not only the Jews in Philadelphia, but also the entire Roman world to capitulate to this pantheon of gods and to worship Caesar as, as another god. Um, and yet, Jesus is saying at that time, I will keep you. You will persevere. You will not deny my name because I will keep you. He is again reiterating that he is the one that has the power. So we've seen the evaluator and his evaluation. Now he offers some encouragement to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, Starting in verse 11, it says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So his first encouragement is right there. I am coming soon. You can imagine day in and day out. The church in Philadelphia is facing pressure. They're facing this persecution from the Jews, from their family, from their friends, from their community, this pressure just to to deny the name of Jesus. And yet, Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon. I'm going to be there. Like You you can hold out just a little bit longer. And um, just what an encouragement that would be to that church. Uh, And then he says, hold fast what you have so that none might seize your crown. When I first read this, I was like, hold fast what you have. Well, what, what do they have? Um, and yet, I think uh, when you look back at the passage, you see what they have. They have his word, right? Because they are keeping his word. They're holding fast to his word. They have kept his word about patient endurance. They have kept his word about not denying my name, about denying his name. And so, as he mentions that twice in his evaluation, and then he says, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And so, this is the word that they're holding on to, that they hold fast to, and that they believed enough and cherished enough to not deny his name, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to endure the trials and pressures and persecution that come with the steadfast proclamation of Jesus and who he is. Um, And so... If, you, if the one who holds fast, right, the one who holds fast will not have their crown seized. The one who conquers, they will be made a pillar in the temple of their God. Never shall he go out of it. So you think of this church in Philadelphia who see their Jewish uh, family go into the, like they are perhaps going to Jerusalem to go to the temple or going somewhere, well, not after eighty seventy, but before that. And they see that and they... Um, and they may be a little bit jealous. And yet John, and Je- Jesus says that if you hold fast what you have, if you hold fast to, what my, to my word, then no one will seize your crown, and I will make you a temple, a pillar in the temple of my God. So not only if you come through Jesus will you have access to the king, will you have access to the very throne room of the king, you will be a temple in the throne room, in the in the. You will be a pillar in the temple of God. And so what an encouragement that is to the, uh, to, the, to the believers in Philadelphia, that they will be established forever in the temple of God. And not only that, but he goes on to say that they will have the name of the city of my God and the, and the name of my God written on them and the, 
uh, and my own new name. So not only will they be in the temple, in the very presence of God forever, but they will have God's identification written on them. They will have everything that God is and stands for written on them and Jesus and his city. So they will be firmly established in that place forever. And what an encouragement to those, church, to those uh, believers in Philadelphia as they were suffering through that pressure and persecution and the persecution that was to come. And so to those who hold fast his word, they'll be established. And they will write his name, right? And um, he will dwell in his house forever. And so the application comes to us. Uh, if we recognize that we have but little power, if we hold fast to what we have, if we hold fast to his word, all that he says, all, and hold, not deny his name, everything that this book says about him and who he is and what he's done, if we hold fast to that, he is the one who will grant us access to the throne room of God. We will, he, we will be able to access the king. He is the one who holds the key of David, who, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. And we will be allowed to enter into the very presence of God. So if we not deny his name, he will grant us access. And if we, patiently, we will be able to patiently endure the persecutions and trials that come from holding fast to his name, holding fast to his word about not denying his name and all that he is, then we will receive our crown. No one will seize our crown and we will be established in the city of God forever. We will be a pillar in the very presence of God with the identification of God written on us, with the identification of his son written on us, and with the city of God written on us. And so we will never be, uh, we will be established in his presence forever. Um, and so if we hold fast to what we have, if we hold fast to his word, then we will not be like this tree on the cliff anymore. We will be like this giant redwood. Firmly established. It's not going anywhere, at least for a little while. Um, but we will be a pillar in the temple of God. We will be firmly established and uh, in the city of God, in the presence of God. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the holy and true one. You open and no one can shut. You shut and no one open. And you have opened a way to, the, to uh, yourself through Christ. And so, Jesus, we just thank you for holding the keys, for opening a door for the church in Philadelphia, and for opening a door for all those who would put their faith in you. Father, we ask that you would help us hold fast to your word. Help us, Lord, as we uh, seek to, as we go about our days, um, as it is easy in our day and age to deny your name, to uh, perhaps proclaim a Jesus who is less than God, who is less than, um, than the risen one, the holy one, the Messiah. Um, Lord, help us to proclaim Jesus as he is, to, deny, to not deny his name, and to patiently endure those pressures and persecutions that come from holding fast to your word. God, we thank you for this time. We pray that this uh, afternoon our fellowship might be sweet and uh, glorifying to you. Thank you, Lord. It is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.